Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. We begin our new series with a look at the impact of health technology on patient care. If we just continue to try to eke out productivity without regard to the human contact and how vital that is, that's this deep empathy that we want to aspire to. We're losing the greatest opportunity to get back to the way medicine was supposed to be, which is a human touch story. In fact, as the machines get so good and smarter, this is our chance for humans to shine. In this episode, my colleague Hannah Kuschler speaks with the American cardiologist Eric Topol about his book, Deep Medicine, which looks at the potential for artificial intelligence to free up doctors to spend more time with their patients. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Hannah. Great to be with you. So I wanted to start with computer vision because it's one of the areas where we've seen the most progress in AI and perhaps is the area where we've seen the most progress in AI in medicine. How is it being used now for diagnosis and how long until it replaces radiologists? Well, the latter part, replacing radiologists, is most unlikely despite some of the proclamations. But the interesting thing is it's moving fast with respect to images. So particularly x-rays and CAT scans and all the different types of medical images. There, you can see where that's really helping radiologists today. More and more, it's screening the study, the scan, before the radiologist ever starts to look at it. And now it's also getting into things like finding polyps during a colonoscopy, uh, diagnosing skin lesions. So it's helping various pathologist slides also. Many different disciplines in medicine are starting to have this booster effect. And so what is it not so good at doing at the moment? What do you need the radiologist for? Oh, well, you still need the radiologist because it's your health. It could be your life. And so you don't really want to have a mistake. So there, the context, if you're going to want to find lung nodules on a chest X-ray, they may be missed by radiologists. In fact, about 30% of various things are missed overall in all the scans by radiologists. So it will pick up certain things that it's been trained to do, these machines trained to see things that humans can't. But then it, what about the rest of the person and the other things of interest? So it's, it does well within its limits. It's a narrow, extraordinary capability, but you still need human oversight. Yeah. I also thought it was funny in your book that you said that pigeons were actually very good at reading scans too. Well, they were trained, and they're not as good as machines as it turns out, but it was pretty striking that pigeons could read a mammogram or look at slides and they could make the signal of whether it was cancer or not. So pigeons are smarter than I think we give them credit for. (laughs) I have this image of pigeons in little white coats. So you also talk about information specialists and this idea that maybe you don't get rid of radiologists or pathologists, but that they become the kind of most tech-savvy people in the hospital when they're able to deal with the technology side of things. How would that work? Well, I think they have to be the ones, because they are pattern doctors, they rely on this AI, these tools. They have to understand it, all the nuances, uh, recognize when something isn't working right. And so they, these information specialists, whether they combine forces and it's a new discipline or whether they're very just well-versed, the big thing to me is that they can connect to patients. And if you talk to them, the radiologists, they don't really want to live in the dark in the basement. They actually do want to talk to patients. They have a lot to offer because they have this 
honest broker sense where they're not pushing an operation or a surgery. They're just giving their expert opinion. And so I think we're going to see more connection between radiologists and pathologists with patients to discuss their findings, which is a rarity today. Yeah, that sounds very positive. And so after radiology and pathology, where do you think AI is next most likely to make inroads? Well, I think the next big thing we're going to see, it's just starting to take hold, and it's really exciting, is keyboard liberation. So for all doctors and nurses and clinicians in general, there's the potential now, and it's getting realized you know, in the UK and an emergency center and in China and starting to in the US, where voice is made into beautiful notes and all the other things that need to be done, like ordering the tests or in the US, billing is a big deal. So that is working much better than expected. And so quickly, a doctor's voice can be trained and the patient can edit their notes. And so we'll restore the eye-to-eye contact and the sense of a presence. And that's really exciting. And that will affect the entire medical community. And there's a lot of talk, especially in the U.S. at the moment, about the electronic health records actually being a major cause of burnout for doctors. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up because being a data clerk is not a fun thing. It's actually demoralizing. It takes up a lot of time, and it does explain, at least in a large way, why so many physicians, about half, burn out, and it's not even just doctors, it's all clinicians. And we're also seeing the record number of people with clinical depression and even suicide. The other bad part about this, no less the morale being busted, is that the doubling of medical errors occurs with burnout. So it's a vicious cycle. You make an error, you realize it, is more likely to get burnout. So we have to stop this cycle. We have to get rid of this burnout, and we have to basically reboot. The electronic health record system is so geared to big business, it never gave a hoot about patients or doctors. So you think that voice in the doctor's office could end up taking over a lot of those responsibilities? Yes, I think it's imminent. I mean, we'll see that starting to take hold in the next couple of years. As a user of commercially available voice software, I find it really hard to believe that that's going to happen so fast because, you know, at the moment I, as a journalist, can't find anything that would transcribe my interviews effectively enough, let alone when you're dealing with disease names and drug names, which are deliberately designed to be hard to spell. Well, I understand your point, especially with your great British accent. Mm which is more understandable than Americish. But I think the issue here is we've already seen that the professional medical transcriptionists have been transcended. There's many startups and many of the tech titan companies that are on this, over 20 that I know of. So it's just a field of now very serious competition. And so we're not talking about Siri or even Alexa type. We're talking about a much more advanced capability. So then what comes next? I know that you write in the book that there is already actually a significant robotic surgery, digital surgery aspect, but but that maybe it's not actually that effective yet. Do you think that's going to become more effective? Oh, I think it will. I think surgery as it exists today, the robots are actually fairly primitive. And also there's so many things that can be done in the operating theater to improve surgery with all the person's data But one of the things that's particularly exciting was an operation performed in San Francisco reported in Nature where they were able to take people using AI 
with an implant to record their brain activity and make that go right to speech. So that basically, this deep neural net, it's actually pretty stunning. So if you were paralyzed and you couldn't speak, uh, you could have your speech restored. So this is some of the capabilities of basically when you have a signal, in this case brain activity, and you train it to, into words, you're basically decoding it. It's actually remarkable. And so we're starting to see things that you can let your imagination run wild. That's a form of surgery that would help people that we wouldn't even have envisioned in the past. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting you talk about unconventional clues to someone's mental health and how you can use AI to just collect a lot of data to do that. Can you give some examples? Yeah, so there's really two big things going on in mental health, which could be a big rescue. Firstly, we can now objectively define a state of mind and mood of a person, and that would be involving things like their breathing pattern, their voice, their speech is really a rich data source, but also, you know, other parameters, even facial recognition and some of their vital signs. So when you couple that with this other big thing, which is people would rather divulge their innermost secrets to an avatar more than another human being. And that's quite convenient since we don't have enough professional human beings. I find that amazing. I find that so unlikely, but yeah. I I thought so too, and it's been replicated now. And it's something about having this secrecy that you don't have the confidence in discussing with the person as much as an avatar. So I think we're going to start seeing now the combination of these, which is tracking someone's mental state, mental health, as well as being able to outsource some of the help to people particularly with depression, with this sort of technology. So it's actually, I think, exciting because we haven't had a way to compensate for this disproportionate burden of people with mental health issues and lack of professional. Yeah, I think that sounds very promising if you can get all the data and privacy issues and everything. Well, you're touching on a really important point, Hannah, that a lot of this is early It's long on promise and short on proof. So we have to get the rigorous studies to validate all this. And there's work to be done, but at least there's a kind of path as a charter to make this happen. Yeah. So one of your big ideas in the book is that I guess you didn't want people to feel like they're going to be seen by Dr. AI and, you know, have a really sort of robotic process. You want doctors to be freed up and and able to do some of the more human work that perhaps they've lost because they're looking at the screen the whole time. And I I find this idea really hopeful and promising, but I also, I must say, I feel like normally when AI and automation comes into industries, it doesn't mean that they have more time to do the bits of the job they like. It tends to mean that they have more patients to see in this case. You know, isn't the whole business model of healthcare stacked against that change, especially with the aging population? Well, that would be the natural expectation. And um, it's really interesting because I spent about a year and a half commissioned by the UK to oversee this big NHS review. And uh, this is how AI and these digital tools would change the future and the workforce. And, And answering the question that you just asked, because the default mode would be using all this productivity and efficiency You see more patients, read more scans, you know, whatever, just do more. That isn't working too well. And we've seen a terrible erosion over decades of this doctor-patient relationship. 
But interestingly, it really resonated with the NHS and all the this multidisciplinary team I work with about the gift of time mm. and how they're going to demand in the UK. And they, they showed how minutes can make a big difference. The efficiency that's going to be an outgrowth of this new era will be turned inward. And I think it's a model, and I think the UK is leading the charge, and other places will have to learn from that. Because if we just continue to try to eke out productivity without regard to the human contact and how vital that is, that's this deep empathy that we want to aspire to, we're losing the greatest opportunity to get back to the way medicine was supposed to be, which is a human touch story. In fact, as the machines get so good and smarter, this is our chance for humans to shine. Yeah. And so did the NHS pledge not to make AI take away time and jobs then? Well, that's what we recommended. Of course, you know, in the midst of all the Brexit stuff, we'll have to see how it all plays out. But there was marked enthusiasm. You know, actually, I had the chance to meet with the Secretary of State and members of Parliament, and it resonated. It's not as bad in the UK as in the US as far as the deterioration of relationship. There's still respect for the healthcare system there. But... The idea of having more time with patients and being able to rebuild the trust, the presence, the real depth of relationship, I think that really hit home and there's tremendous interest in making sure that happens. Now we'll have to fast forward to see if it really plays out. And in terms of receptiveness to AI, do you find the UK ahead or behind the US? Well, in many respects, it's ahead because surprisingly, they've already instituted the voice story and they're going to disseminate that more. It's been such a success. DeepMind, one of the biggest companies now, part of Google, has played a leadership role. One of the things that is striking is how they deal with eye diseases. And the UK published the most striking report to date where they could use an algorithm to diagnose over 50 different conditions that are urgent in eye disease at the Moorfield Institute with Pierce Keene and colleagues working in collaboration with DeepMind. So that is getting a lot of excitement because a lot of eye diseases like diabetic retinopathy and many others are not adequately screened or diagnosed. And now we're seeing even the receptionists in an office can diagnose these conditions that previously were never even part of an evaluation. So we're going to make some real strides, I think. And eye disease, interestingly, is ahead of radiology in some respects. It's ahead of all these. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Their field in terms of doing these really rigorous studies. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And Google has taken some kind of AI to detect diabetic-related eye disease to India, right? Yes, they've taken it to India. It hasn't worked as well as it did in the U.S., but they're tweaking it now. But that's an important point, too, that you're bringing up, and that is when you develop this machine training algorithm, it's only applicable to the people that you tried it in and you tested it in. So when you try to extrapolate to different places, different ancestry, you have to be careful. 
Yeah, and in fact, there's an issue with genetic data overall that it sort of over-indexes with white people of European origin, right? So important that you're bringing that up because the whole genomics era has been so over-emphasizing people of European ancestry, and we don't want that to happen again with AI, and we have to make a conscious effort to have a great cross-section. Otherwise, we're going to wind up where you have all this data, and it only helps largely with one ancestry. Yes. And I was also going to ask you about China and where they're ahead with AI and medicine. It's surprising in China they have a big advantage in part because not just they have a lot of people, they have a lot of data. And they're charging ahead. They've made it a national priority, not just AI and healthcare, but AI in general. They're putting in a lot of resources. But they have these hospitals that have 2,000 beds that are using AI for everything you can imagine. They are on it as far as the voice. They published a remarkable study of children with diseases that were diagnosed, a wide variety of conditions through algorithms. So they're embracing it and at scale. So we'll have to see. They also have a reason to do that, and they have a shortage of doctors for their population. They also have a big rural population that doesn't have the equal access to the big cities. So they're using it in a way to help bolster that situation. Is it also an advantage for them that they don't have very much in the way of privacy laws? Well, that's a really interesting thing you brought up. I thought that was the case. I think most people might outside of China. But they're very particular about medical data. So the government has access to everything, you know, has a facial recognition, everything. But their medical data is actually by default because going from one hospital to the next, they don't talk to each other. So it's like the U.S. It's like the Tower of Babel. So they can't bring in all the data because it's not in any uniform format. So that's one thing. The medical data is very guarded and only used in academic research programs with all sorts of encryption and anonymization. So it's different than I expected. Interesting. And I wanted to talk to you about, you know, who is going to be the companies or the researchers behind this? We're talking kind of a few days after IBM shut down its drug discovery program. And IBM has been touting the use of Watson in all different areas of healthcare for some time. And this is not its first failure. In fact, you express some skepticism about it in the book. And I wanted to know, do you think that that is at all reflective of the ability for tech companies to make roads in healthcare, or is it an IBM-specific problem? Well, there is some IBM specificity here, unfortunately, because they were the first. They recognized that AI was going to be big, and then they started marketing it heavily without the real deal. And so they're paying a price for that because a lot of the programs that they announced just didn't go anywhere, despite that they had TV commercials and newspaper ads and everything. So I did call them out in the book, and I have met with them, and I don't know that they're making such great progress. But, you know, eventually they're such a big company, they'll probably figure out a way to make a difference. In the meantime, other big tech companies that started later are landing the plane a lot earlier. And so they really are making a difference. And I see Google and Amazon and Microsoft are kind of leading the charge. Apple's not that far behind in the U.S. And, of course, there's just hundreds of startups here that are making a difference. So it's taking off. And the other thing that we haven't talked about is at the consumer level, at the patient level, because things are happening quickly there. First it was Apple with the heart rhythm algorithm on a smartwatch. 
Then recently it's urine analysis that you could get your urinary tract infection through your smartphone with an AI. So you have to wee on a smartphone? <laughs> well, you don't have to take a, a pee on the phone, but use a dipstick that's been trained to simulate a culture as far as its accuracy. And so many things, skin lesions are soon going to be diagnosed. So a lot of people will be able to bypass doctors for non-serious matters, which is great because that further decompresses the role of doctors so that they'll have more time for the important matters. Yeah, interesting. And so with the big tech companies, do you see them taking very different approaches or are they all competing in the field, which is I'm good at data and I'm good at AI, so I must be able to be good at healthcare? That's a really good question. Eventually, they're going to lock horns, but right now they seem to have all carved out different particular areas. Like you mentioned, Google uh, working on eye disease and many specific issues, whereas Amazon has uh, got a very different strategy, it seems. Apple has been especially not just the watch, but they've been very heavy into getting people's records through portals which I don't know that that's as good as we want to get for people to have all their data, but it's a good start. So each one is kind of have a, a different design on what they want to accomplish. And you mentioned in the book the case of AliveCore, when AliveCore beat Apple on devices that measured heart rhythm and potassium levels. What do you think the prospects are for startups in this space? Do you think there are places where there are real advantages over the big tech companies? I thought that that David and Goliath's story really showed how startups can take it to the biggest companies in the world. Here, this little company with a team of five who were derived from some of the big tech companies, but they got there a year earlier, and Apple didn't even acknowledge them, which is amazing to me. But they did it. They had the first deep learning algorithm approved by FDA to monitor heart rhythm. So that shows that the agility if people are going after really smart ideas that are unmet needs, and you have the combination of some medical grounding and some really good computer science people, you can do almost anything in this space. And that there are so many unmet needs, and that maybe especially if you have some healthcare expertise, you can spot them early. Yes. I mean, I just am blown away because I've been a student of medicine for four decades, and I've never seen anything quite like this because I wouldn't have guessed that you know, you could train algorithms to do the things that we're seeing done now. And, you know, soon there'll be a watch that will monitor your blood level of your potassium approved by FDA. If you have kidney disease, that's really a big deal without any blood. So the limits are just surprising that if we can just think of all the things that we can get machine help, we can make for far better health care. And do you think that we need to sort out the regulation around who owns data before we get there? Is this kind of a case like self-driving cars where it might be that we have amazing technology but we don't put it on the road because we haven't sorted out the rules of the road yet? Well, to me, it's kind of like the car which is missing one or two wheels. What I mean is the way people don't have their medical data. Mm. So they're kind of missing a wheel or two. So. The issue here is that it's very rare that people have their data from when they were in their mother's womb to the current moment. Those are inputs. All those are data points, whether it's labs or visits or any metric that you could put in images, you name it. Your genome, uh, eventually, uh, sensors that you might be wearing. All that data are precious inputs. And these algorithms, these deep neural nets, they have insatiable appetite to learn about you and to give you recommendations, so, or your doctor to learn about you to help the doctor. So the fact that we don't have all the data assembled 
And the fact that people don't own their data is a problem because we're going to have compromised output. It's not going to be comprehensive, and that, I hope, will change over time. Yeah. But do you think that we need laws? I mean, I know that in the US there is HIPAA, but it's not at all sort of ready for this age of AI and data and what one can find out from one's data and, as you said, genetic data and the potential risks there. I mean, do you think that the ability to learn from this data is going to eventually be held back by the lack of a legal framework? Yes, I think, you know, I kind of call HIPAA schmippa. It's like so weak for what we need. That is over 60% of Americans have had their medical data hacked, stolen. It's worth a lot of money here, of course, because of Medicare fraud and things like that. It is. It's worth five times more on the dark web than your personal financial data, which is amazing. So we're not protecting it, and HIPAA is basically ineffective. We need laws, I believe, and technological solutions that get the data in the right hands, which is the person's data. And if it sits on massive servers... What we've learned is that becomes, because it's so valuable, it becomes the target of cyber thieves. And so what we need to do is come up with a better model where data doesn't necessarily all sit on these big servers because it's just prime target for a problem. And the gurus all say, just get it out of these massive servers. That's step number one. Yeah, it needs to be disconnected, but connected for the AI, it's always a conflict. But you talk about the idea of people owning their data, and there seems to be a lot of different interpretations of what that means. You know, does it just mean I can take it out of your hands if I want to? I can make you delete it? But some people are going further and saying, well, actually, if a provider develops a solution based off, you know, scans of an organ of mine, should I get a profit from that? Right. Well, that's kind of the extreme view, which is it's your data and you should get paid if it's going to be used for something. And the fact that we were even talking about that and the fact that there's some companies doing it, that's showing a shift right there, which is noteworthy. But I do think that this whole idea of, like in Estonia, where you own your data, it sits on a blockchain platform, it's all organized, uh, it's searchable, you share it with the doctor the relevant parts, or if you want to do a medical study, you want to participate, you share certain parts, you direct it, you control it. That's the ownership model that we, it doesn't have to be on a blockchain, but something that accomplishes that same goal. And if you want to sell your data, okay, great. But you make the call. Or if it's as parents, you're doing this for your child or something like that. But do people know enough? I feel like, personally, with genetic data, I feel like you're signing a form and you have no idea really what people are going to be able to learn about you from your genetic data in the future. Yes. Well, we're going to get more educated. It's only relatively recent where this democratization of medical data took hold. I mean, it still had a ways to go, of course. So people are going to realize how valuable it is and how important it is. And when it's missing and you can't get your arms around it, they're going to see that the benefits that it can be derived are going to be reduced. So we're going to all get education. Hopefully we'll get trained about how vital that is. And I wanted to end with your vision of the ultimate medical assistant chatbot and how you could actually be helped, not just at the doctor's office, but in your whole way you live your life by AI understanding your health. Well, I think this virtual medical coach is the most exciting thing of the future. It'll take some time to get the general coach to be operational. We're already seeing it in things like diabetes where 
it's bringing in all your data, everything you eat and your gut microbiome and your physical activity and your sleep and your stress and starting to give you coaching. And it's still not where it needs to be, but that just shows you how you have one chronic condition that can be managed with an avatar in you, or if you prefer text or just uh, audio, whatever you like. But the point here is that if we go where this can take us, and including all of the medical literature up to the moment relevant to you, it could be extraordinary because we could prevent conditions that we would otherwise be destined to get or have before they ever strike. So the person who has a risk for asthma before they ever have a wheeze or the person that might have a heart disease before they ever have a blockage in their arteries because they're getting coached all the time. I gave a bunch of examples in the book, and one of them, they fired their coach because they didn't like, you know, be bothered. Yeah, bossy, right? But if you find the right coach and the data really is helping you, it could really be a winner because we use that sort of thing today for just mundane daily activities. But imagine if that could help prevent diseases or help manage conditions that we have. It is quite the vision. I don't know if I could resist the bossiness, but maybe it promised me an extra 10 years of life or something. There you go. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Hannah. That was Eric Topol talking to Hannah Kushler about his book, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. Thanks for listening. Next week, we hear from social media theorist Nathan Jurgensen on the revolution in photography that we've all experienced over the last decade. We welcome comments and suggestions from listeners, so please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.